Would you join me in prayer together? Oh, great and faithful Father, we praise your name this morning. We ask that you might forgive us for taking your grace for granted, for presuming upon your mercy and your generosity. Purge our indifference. Make our hearts brim with thankfulness. Christ's crucifixion has opened the way, the gateway into your presence. We pray that every soul gathered here knows you personally. I pray that the Spirit's regenerating power might transform the one that is lost. May they hear and gladly receive the gospel today. It is a wonderful blessing for us to assemble as your family, as one, in unity, We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would bind us together in love, enable us to see the church through your eyes, grow us in truth and obedience for your glory. Lord, we ask that you would use this gathering to advance your church and your kingdom. We pray for the church as it gathers all around the world today. Some places, gathering in your name is forbidden, and it's dangerous. We pray for your protection. We pray for your peace. We pray for your strength to enable brothers and sisters in the faith to be strong. In some places, people have grown cold toward you. We pray that your spirit would rock the souls of their hearts, Lord, with brokenness, that you would make them desperate for you. Renew their minds and their hearts. Fill them with passion for you. Lord, do not allow them to remain comfortable and indifferent. We long to see you and know what healthy churches are. We pray that you will shape this community of faith into a healthy and vibrant body. That you do whatever it takes to make us a city on a hill in this community. Make us a powerful and effective gospel witness here in this place. We ask that you do it for your glory and that you do it through our Lord Jesus. Amen. So last week we began thinking about what it means to be a covenant people, to be together in covenant. We said that articles of faith, statements of faith that churches ascribe to or often have as a part of their founding documents, summarize what we believe the Bible teaches. Our covenant then is a an expression, a summary of how we are to behave because of what we say the Bible teaches and what we believe. They are both uh, derived out of the Scripture. They're not additions to the Scripture. And for that reason, it has been my intent as we share our covenant together regularly here as we observe the Lord's Supper to help us understand why it's important, 
to understand how it connects and to enhance the meaning that we have when we recite it together each and every month. Last week, we talked about the first paragraph in that document. And basically, if we were to summarize it, we would say it it expresses who we are in Christ, who we are as a people, who we are as the body of Christ. Today, we're looking at the second paragraph. It's in your worship guide. If you look on the first page there beside the order of service, you will find it. This is what it says. It says that we engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and peace, to promote its spirituality and fruitfulness, to sustain its worship, ordinances, and discipline, to welcome and test biblically instruction from the Scriptures by the elders of the church, seeking to grow toward biblical unity in the truth, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. So last week, who we are. This week, we're thinking about what we do together, what we do together as a body of Christ, based upon what the Scripture teaches us. This passage in Ephesians chapter 4 is a nice little summary of what the church should look like what the church is about, how it's working and growing together. You'll find other places in Scripture. There's not one long passage that lays out everything you find in your uh, covenant that there's a lot of Scriptures referenced in conjunction with this second paragraph, but Ephesians 4 gives us kind of a high-level overview, if you will. I want to offer you today based upon this paragraph coming out of your covenant, which summarizes Scripture's teaching on Scripture, I want to uh, talk to us about seven things that I believe Scripture instructs us to do together. Seven things that we are to do together. I don't think this will be an exhaustive list, but it'll be a core list that we should practice as is evidenced in our covenant together. First of all, as God's people, Scripture commands us that we are to walk together in Christian love. We walk in Christian love together. We all want to be loved. Everyone wants to love. Everyone wants to be loved. You may have a different idea of what that looks like. You may define it in a particular way. But we all want to be loved. You remember in the upper room, Jesus, before his arrest, brought his disciples together. They were uh, celebrating the Passover feast together. And he was introducing the Lord's Supper to them that would uh, be the memorial moving forward after his death and resurrection. And when they gathered together, Jesus took off his garments, the scripture says, and he donned the towel, a wrapping that was common to a slave. And he brought water, poured it into a basin, and he began to wash their feet. And you remember, they were quite indignant about this. Peter especially said, Lord, you can't do this. Why? Because it was a picture, an expression of Jesus' complete humiliation. He reduced himself to a slave to take care of their needs, to wash their feet. Now, it was nowhere close to the 
to the uh, humiliation that Christ experienced when he condescended from the throne to become a man and live in this world. But he was showing them the character of what it means to be his people, to be the kingdom people, a people who love each other deeply who humble themselves before one another. Right after he finished washing their feet, he taught them this. He said, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. One of the things we do together as a body of Christ is that we walk together in Christian love. What is it? 1 Corinthians 13 is called the love chapter. It's incorporated into a lot of weddings. It's incorporated into a lot of gatherings where we want to stress love. But what does it say? It says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. We cannot love in our natural strength. And so your covenant, the paragraph I just read, says that this occurs by the aid of the Holy Spirit residing in us. The one who is love dwells within us and enables us to walk in love together. The love that Christ has demonstrated that he says we are to imitate is love that laid down its own life for us while we were still in our sin. The second thing that scripture teaches that we are to do together is that we are to strive for the church's advancement together. Strive for the church's advancement together. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 that we read earlier paints a nice portrait of this. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. He gave teachers, shepherds, pastors, elders, all synonymous, to equip and perfect the saints, to help the saints grow up into the fullness of Christ that they might be used by God to minister, to strengthen the church, to strengthen God's work in this world so that the body of Christ advances. Building up the body of Christ. Moving us all to a unity of the faith. So that we're not tossed around like rag dolls when the world is tumultuous. When the world is heaving and upheaving. But that we're settled in on the rock. We're, we're anchored deep to that rock. Through his word. Our covenant says strive for this advancement. Strive implies a struggle or a fight. It implies resistance that's coming. And many people think Christianity is a leisurely stroll. Is it fair to think about Christian life as a fight? 
I think if you don't think about it in that way, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Where God's truth exists and is proclaimed, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be resistance. Hindrances, distractions are sure to rage against us. Now, there is peace for us in Christ. We know that. The Scripture promises that. Even in the midst of tumultuous circumstances, we have peace resting in Christ. Not like what the world gives, he told his disciples, but it's a divine peace, a peace of the soul. We are aliens in a broken world. Resistance and turmoil is to be expected. We're swimming upstream in this world. And as long as God leaves us here, it is our responsibility to continue to swim upstream, to continue to be a resistance to their resistance. But we do so with trust and surrender to the power of His Spirit working in us. We do so that the ship, that is the church, may continue to advance. We have full assurance of our future arrival, that we're going to arrive there just as He has destined us to do in the full reality of God's filling through His Spirit and His equipping in us. And as we do, we have our knowledge of Him increase. We increase in knowledge of Him. Our holiness with Him increases. Our faith grows. And as our faith grows, our peace expands and deepens because we're trusting in Him. We continue to mature in the faith individually and corporately. And godly fruit manifests as God works in us and through us. So we work, we strive for the advancement of the church. We also promote the church's spirituality and fruitfulness together. Promote spirituality and fruitfulness together. Promote means to pursue it actively. Pursue it actively. We're not content to idle away resources and time waiting for heaven to appear. We have a responsibility in this world to continue to pursue the church's spiritual character, distinctiveness from the world, and fruitfulness for the kingdom of God. John 15 gives us a great picture of that. John 15, you know this passage, but I want to read it this morning because I think it's so important. John 15, beginning with verse 1. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. As we each abide in Christ, unity blossoms. Unity blossoms. Much fruit appears and God is glorified. Now we cannot produce it on our own. It's by the aid of the Spirit in us that this occurs. You have a fruit tree in your yard. Most of you probably do. Many of you probably do. I want to ask you, what's the possibility of you going out there and by sheer effort making fruit come to bear on that fruit tree. What's, what's the chances that you can be successful doing that? Can you will it to happen? Can you do anything to make it happen? You can't. What you need are more days like we had yesterday and the day before where the temperatures begin to rise and the ground begins to warm. And as it does, the sap begins to push upward through the trunk of the tree. And it begins to fill out through the limbs and the branches. And it gets to the end and the sap gets so full, there's so much force there that it begins to put forth buds. And those buds then turn into leaves. And leaves uh, give evidence that there's coming blossoms. And those blossoms tell us that there's fruit coming. And somewhere later in the season, you'll be able to pick fruit from that tree. And it'll be delicious. In the same way, you can't produce spiritual fruit. It takes the Spirit of God working in us and pressing up through us, filling us, and moving through us to provide evidence of life, leaves, leaves in our lives, leaves that are faith, repentance, obedience to God, leaning and trusting into God, and that then begins to put forth blossoms, and that leads to fruitfulness, and that happens individually in us, and it happens corporately in the body of Christ together. This is the way God works, and it brings forth fruit, he says, that remains. You see, when we try to make something that looks like fruit or something we define as fruit, it doesn't remain. It's here today, and then it decays. It rots. It goes away. The moth and rust destroy it. But when it comes through the Spirit, it produces fruit that remains. Fourthly, we find that we sustain the church's worship, ordinances, and discipline together. We sustain the church's worship, ordinances, and discipline together. We strengthen or support worship, ordinances, and discipline. These are important markers that distinguish us from the world around us. The way we worship is distinct from anything else in the world. 
The ordinances that we observe are different from anything that you'll find out in the world. The discipline that we administer, the world looks at and scratches its head. In fact, many in the church today even do the same thing. John 4, 24 says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. Luke read Colossians chapter 3 earlier. But I want to go back through verses 12 through 17. Which says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you have been called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What a great description of our gathering together in worship. But what about Matthew 28, 18 and 20? Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, which includes do this in remembrance of me, the observance of the Lord's Supper together. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. He's given evidence that he is not of the faith. He is not part of the body of Christ. Titus 3, 10 and 11 says, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. It's not part of the body. Discipline is important to mark us off from the world, to maintain and guard the purity of the body of Christ, to be a witness to the world around us. Churches weaken themselves by neglecting these distinctives. Worship can be made into something that's attractional, that's only based in entertainment. It may be well-intended as we're trying to bring people in, but when you bring them in with it, what have you got then? At some point in time, you have to cross a threshold, don't you? And begin to tell them why you wanted them to come in. I think that the scripture is very clear that as we worship Christ biblically, we worship him passionately in spirit and in truth, that he will do the drawing through his power. We don't have to attract them with anything. Ordinances are often altered in an unhealthy way in many churches today. They advocate that the bread and the wine becomes the body and blood of Christ. 
Or they open the doors and practice such an open communion that there's no, there's no warning, there's no concern, no parameters about coming and partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's frivolous. This is a dangerous thing before God. Here at this church, we're not open, nor are we closed. We practice a close communion. That is, that you be a person who is in the faith and a person who is walking with Christ. We consider you to be a brother and sister in Christ, even though you may not be a member of this church, as long as you're theologically and doctrinally close to us in communion, then we welcome you to participate. Church discipline is avoided like COVID in many churches today. There's, the results is there's no accountability. Bad and harmful behavior is not only tolerated, but it's encouraged when discipline is not a part of a church's practice. You wouldn't allow this at home because you know it would spoil your children. But yet, we think nothing of doing it in the church and spoiling the church. Fifthly, we welcome and test biblical instruction by the elders together. We welcome and test biblical instruction by the elders together. That's your responsibility. To listen as the elders bring a message. As I'm standing here today proclaiming God's word, I fully expect for you to take and sit down and examine, examine the word of God and see if what I'm saying is true in alignment with the Spirit. Now, these Jews, Acts 17, 11, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Hebrews 13, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 12 through 22. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies or preaching, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Often unhealthy motives are attached to those who are in leadership in the church. Now, I know that some may view pastoring to be a, an easy profession. I've heard that all my life. I don't know. Those people don't have much experience at it. Some may view it as a prestigious thing, that they receive some sort of exaltation or um, esteem uh, for it. 
that some may view it as a means for exerting power over others. But most, my experience has been that most do it with a right motivation. They want to see the church of God healthy. They want to see the church of God fulfilling its calling. They want to be honoring and pleasing to God. Our culture is suspicious of authority. It's suspicious of authority and leadership. Some of it's earned, a lot of it's fabricated. For instance, let me just say this. I, I want to just, if you'll just indulge me here this morning. Mark Grigg serves as an elder here in this church, and he's been a member at this church for more than 20 years. He's taught Sunday school classes. He's served as a deacon here. He's been involved in ministry beyond the church. He's made mission trips. He spent several years working at the International Mission Board, and his last employment before he retired was to work with LifeShape in conjunction with uh, the Chick-fil-A uh, Corporation. Luke has been here at this church since he was three. He's been on numerous mission trips, grew up here. Even spent a summer in Senegal as our church's missionary to the Wolof people there. He's been an intern on our staff. We sponsored him with our scholarship. He went off to seminary. He got trained. He worked and served at First Baptist Church of Durham, North Carolina. And when the opportunity came to come back here and serve, he came willingly and eagerly. And he's faithfully served here for the last five years as an associate pastor on our staff. It's been my privilege to serve here for going on 19 years. It's been a lot of water pass under the bridge in those 19 years. I could have left on many occasions. But I chose not to. I didn't believe God was leading me anywhere else. I wanted to stay here and finish what God has begun in this place. What's my point? My point is, is that your current elders are invested here. They're invested here. We are not Johnny-come-latelys with self-serving motives. We love this body, and we want it to thrive for God's glory. Nothing more, nothing less. Our tenure here gives evidence of that. We aspire and work fervently for the church to be a healthy church. We seek to be honoring and pleasing to the Lord. Nothing more and nothing less. God has called and tasked us with shepherding, leading this congregation spiritually. It's certainly challenging, but it's, ble it's blessing. It's, it's rewarding in so many ways as we see God work in people and in our community. It carries with it a daunting responsibility, and I'm more aware of this responsibility more and more as I age, that I bear responsibility for your souls, that I will have to give an account to God for what happens in your life spiritually. So our job is to preach and teach God's truth. By the aid of the Holy Spirit, we're to preach and teach God's truth faithfully, transparently, properly, accurately. You're charged with hearing, with examining, and with obeying that truth. Sixth, we are to grow in biblical unity together. Ephesians 4.13 says, 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Why is Christian unity so important? Well, Jesus purchased it with his shed blood. Ephesians 2 tells us that. Now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. When you hear that description, you go, how, how can we be at odds with one another? If we belong to Christ, how is it possible that we're not in unity together? It's, it's like my left arm and right arm going to war together, right? At each other. <laughs> the head's in between. Not only did Jesus purchase it with his blood, but it's a powerful witness to the world. In John 17, Jesus said this, I do not ask for these only, but also he's praying to the Father. For those who will believe in me through their word, and they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly, become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Our unity amid diversity makes the gospel visible to the world. The world looks at us when we're unified amid diversity and goes, What's up with that? Because everywhere you look in the world today, you see, uh, you see division. You see hostility. You see fragmentation. Tribalism. The world amplifies and celebrates differences. The gospel puts what is broken by sin together. In one body. God's reconciliation removes dividing walls. If your faith allows for dividing walls, it's a false faith. If your faith allows for dividing walls, division on any grounds other than the blood of Christ, then it's a false faith. What does it mean? It means we agree on essential doctrines, inspiration, authority of Scripture, the Trinity, the, the deity, the full deity and humanity of Christ, Christ's substitutionary atonement through the cross, his bodily resurrection from the dead, his second coming, salvation by grace alone through Christ's finished work alone. These are non-negotiables. We agree on these things, on these doctrines, and they are priorities for us we may disagree on some less important things or less essential matters but those things even impact the way we live together methods of baptism biblical prophecy spiritual gifts divorce and remarriage old earth young earth church governance models all these things allow for some sort of disagreement, but still being a part of the body of faith. Not to be trying to be exhaustive here, but just some illustrations. How do we grow in biblical unity? We submit to the authority of God's word. We study and apply God's word in a hermeneutically sound way, fashion. 
We seek to know what God said when he said it and what it means in our life and world today. Some people have a difficult time with these concepts. Many will give lip service to the word of God, but when when you bring it out, they pull back. They resist it because they don't want to submit to it. Others may nod their heads and agree it's a priority, but then do not allow it to conform their lives. From the first time I preached in this church, almost 19 years ago, this coming June, I preached and I told this church, there is one thing that drives me, one thing that will drive my ministry here, and that is to be thoroughly biblical. That the church must be biblical. No matter what else comes or goes, that's where we will be. And my ministry here for 19 years has been driven by that star in the distance, being biblical, doing what the scripture says, no more, no less. Now, this is not something that happens overnight. It's like changing your diet. You can swear off pizza today, but the experts tell us it'll take seven years before the cells in your body actually turn over and there's no more pizza influence there. You want to become a healthy dude, then you start eating healthy food. But it's going to take time for it to change the makeup, the constitution of your body. And the same thing is true spiritually. You want to be a biblically sound church individually, which is what has to happen. It has to happen individually before it can happen corporately then we have to eat biblical food. And it takes place over time. It changes the DNA. We may be fewer in number today, but I believe we're healthier today than we've been. You can feel free to argue, but you'll lose that argument. (laughs) Finally, I want you to know we practice biblical Stewardship. Together. Stewardship's about money, isn't it? Bobby's ears just perked up. He writes the checks around here. Yay. Yes, it's about money, but it's more, it's more than just about money. It's about an attitude of the heart. Jesus talked about it more than he did hell. Talked about money because he knew the dangers that it posed to the human heart. You see, money is that thing that so closely links us to this world. Gets us things that we think we want. Our understanding of stewardship dictates how we manage our lives. Our time, our talents, our treasures. It's all determined how we manage that by our attitude toward stewardship, biblical stewardship. I'm so grateful. A brother in Christ, many years ago, before Karen and I were even married, as I began my career, I was starting in the business world at that time, and he pulled me aside and he challenged me to put God first with my resources. I thought that if I just gave something to the church at the end of the month, you know, out of what I had left over, that I was, I was actually participating in the stewardship of the church. And he said, no, you're not. 
He said, stewardship so much more than that. It's about putting God first. It's about giving the first fruits to God, not the leftovers. I'm talking about, he told me, he said, Jerry, I'm talking about the first fruits before the government gets their cut. And I, my heart just sank. I said, what? But you know what? He challenged me. And I took up his challenge because he promised me. He said, do it for three months. If you're, not, if you're not convinced it's the right thing to do, he said, I'll reimburse you for everything that you've given. I said, well, this was a, no win, a winning situation either way, right? I wanted to get some of his money. So I, so I did it. And it has been the foundation upon which our marriage has existed for almost 38 years. God is the priority of the resources in our home and has been. Sometimes when we didn't know where the next resources were coming from, we've planned, we've planned for God to still be the priority when we depart from this planet. We sat down a few years ago with talking to Mark. Uh, Mark encouraged me again, another friend coming across the right time. And I sat down and planned for my departure from this earth. And we have factored God's kingdom into our inheritance. We want to bless our children. We want to bless our grandchildren, but we also want to bless the kingdom of God. And we've set it up to where the kingdom of God, we'll make our largest single gift to the kingdom of God as we leave this world. What a great way to go. Our church has been blessed by some who've done that recently. Just in the last two or three years, we've received significant gifts. Maybe more than a half a million dollars have come in from faithful servants who have left this world but planned to make what they left behind in resources be used for God's kingdom work. And it's come at a great time for us as a church. Churches all over Georgia, all over the United States, all around the world are struggling right now. Many are on the brink of closing their doors because of what's gone on in our culture over the last two or three years. And just a general apathy that's existing toward the church. But it's great motivation to be good managers of what God has given to you now and in the future. Make a plan. Avoid deep, deep debt, and it allows you to be more generous and more faithful to God. We are to give cheerfully and regularly, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, to support the ministry endeavors of the church, to pay the expenses of the church, to provide for important benevolent needs for the poor, for the needy, and to support missions around the world. This church has been faithful and generous through the years. It's been one of the great joys of the 19 years I've been here is to see how God has used the resources coming from this church to accomplish his work. We pray for God's continued provision and we aspire to be faithful stewards. As we do, we honor God saying to the world, God has given us what we have and so we give the first fruits to him. And we're also declaring our faith that he's going to continue to provide for us in the future. Are you truly a member of God's family? 
If not, I invite you to turn from your sin and yourself today and put your trust in Christ's finished work in Christ alone. Do your attitudes and behaviors support your claim to be in Christ? Are you invested in this body? Are you doing life biblically together with this body? If so, where's the Spirit need to grow you? Where does the Spirit need to prune you so that you might be more able to be used to be fruitful? And you say, well, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Well, if not now, when? When? Are you one of those that's going to try to outguess God and figure out how many days you've got left here and plan accordingly? God has given us a mission as his people in this world. Let us not lose any time or resources, but commit ourselves to doing it his way and doing it with alacrity for his glory. Let us pray together. Lord, we're grateful for the gospel. We're grateful for the ways that you have designed our life in this world. We don't always understand everything, but we're grateful that you have told us what we need to know and how we need to go about things. Lord, I'm grateful for this church and what you have done throughout its history. Since 1892, there's been a church here in this community, and we're grateful that we're still here, and we look forward to many more years to come. We pray that you would continue to bless and strengthen us and use us, Lord, for your glory in this community, that the gospel might be advanced, that, that fruit, spiritual fruit might be realized and might remain for all of eternity. Lord, I pray for your conviction to strike at our hearts where we may be living for ourselves or being lax or apathetic that you would bring conviction and change to bear and that you'll make us a faithful church. Faithful doesn't mean we have to be numerically large. It doesn't mean we have to be anything but faithful to you. And that by the aid of your spirit, that we might be all that you want us to be for your glory and honor in this place. Thank you again for your word. May it take root in our lives and produce fruit that remains. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.